Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today is a three hashtag Jill's pins because we are going to interview someone who was both the spokesperson for the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland, who has written an op-ed advocating for cameras in the courtroom. So I'm wearing a microphone for his role as the spokesperson, a camera for the camera, which I obviously, you know, believe in, but also this is just a few days after 9-11. And so I wanted to honor the losses of that horrible day. And I want to talk to Victor about his, not memory because he wasn't born on 9-11, but of what he knows about 9-11 versus my visceral experience of the day. So I wanted to wear this 9-11 pin that was yeah. gifted to me. Well, you know, Jill, like you said, we, we are recording this a couple of days after um, September 11th, and it, that marked 22 years since that event. And, um, you know, I wasn't born on 9-11. I only remember 9-11 through pictures and and stories and videos. Um, my my clearest sort of sense of 9-11 was actually um, through my AP U.S. history teacher who was in the building on 9-11. And he, on 9-11, when I was in his class, he told all of us about what it was like to be in that building. And he told the story of this one person named Rick Rescorla. Um, I don't know if have you heard of Rick Rescorla at all? No. He was one of the people who um, probably a generational difference. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of the people who, um, while while he was there, he worked for Morgan Stanley, and he was um, Rick was the guy who led all of the um, kind of evacuation preparations um, leading up to uh, 9-11. Um, there was an incident in 1993 in the World Trade Centers, and he basically warned yes. that something like um, this might happen again. And so um, he told us that story of Rick sort of walking walking all of them through that, and then how Rick went back into the building after all of them had evacuated. And unfortunately, he, his life uh, was killed, uh, you know, was taken because of 9-11. But, you know, Afterwards, he told us that the what happened after, and just hearing, you know, the planes being grounded, and just the country coming together, and um, you know, around what just happened, just really was so touching. And and um, I don't think there was a single dry eye in that class, but especially, um, uh, you know, this past Monday, thinking about that moment of unity and the lack of unity that it seems like we have now was really stark. And I hope that we can turn to that time. But I'm just curious, you know, there, there people often say, you know, I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing on 9-11. Um, you know, I don't even have any recollection of it because I wasn't even in the womb yet. But <laughs> tell us about where you were and, and what you were doing and what that day was like for you as we sort of honor 22 years later. Well, um, I was actually giving a speech at the Evanston Chamber of Commerce um, it, with my then boss, uh, Ken Lehman, who headed up Winning Workplaces, a not-for-profit that I was the CEO of. And we were talking about how you could make companies better workplaces by being uh, good to your employees and that that would make you more profitable as well as just doing the right thing. And I saw someone come into the room to talk to the head of the chamber, um, but kept on going. And at the end, he came up and he said, I have to announce that there has been a plane crash into the World Trade Center. And I I couldn't even envision what that meant. 
but it obviously sounded ominous. And Ken and I ended up leaving there, walking back to the office, which was just a block away, and then going to his house and my calling Michael, who then came to Ken's house and Ken and Lucy, his wife, and I watched in total disbelief what was happening. I then became very concerned because, of course, I went to Columbia. So many of my law school classmates worked in New York, some of them in that building. I am blessed that everyone who worked there was safe. Uh, they either were in court or they were late for work. Something happened. And I, I'm, I'm just lucky that I lost no one that day. Um, but I also had a trip to New York just about a week later and planes had stopped being grounded, uh, but mm -hmm. almost no one was flying. Everyone was too afraid, right. but I'm, I'm brave. And so I went to the airport and it was empty and I got on the plane and you know me and you know, my values. I got on the plane, it was almost empty. And then someone came onto the plane carrying a brown paper bag speaking on a cell phone in Arabic. And I actually, for the first time in my life, started thinking, oh my God, why does he have a brown paper bag? And, you know, if it had been anyone else, I wouldn't have probably thought that, but it was too raw and too close. I said to myself, this is ridiculous. You cannot assume and of course, I stayed on the plane and I obviously I made it, but I really had to think hard about what that moment meant that I could have gone to that place where I was categorizing him because he was speaking Arabic. Um, and I have, you know, struggled with having felt that way, but I don't think you can ever know how horrible that feeling of watching it live was. And then I did go to lower Manhattan. You couldn't get quite to the, you know, ground zero, but everything, there were pictures up all over of people who were missing or, or lost dead. There was ash inches deep everywhere, anywhere near there. And it was just, I mean, it's a, a vision that I will never in my life forget. And I hope that everyone remembers that we need to protect our country, but we can't let it turn into hatred of a group because some right. of that group did something horrendous. And I um, I was in New York uh, over spring break this past year, and I did get to go to the 9-11 memorial site. And it's so just it's something it breathtaking and so heartbreaking to see all the names etched into um that yeah. little kind of um you know that that area and it's it's really touching and and to to think about what happened on that day and then also um like you said sort of the aftermath of of witnessing you know what it looked like and i i also want to ask you about sort of the unity part because that was one thing i mentioned that um you know someone who i feel like sort of embodies how far we've come and sort of how far astray we've come is 
Rudy Giuliani and someone who at the time had a lot of, you know, had a large part in unifying the country, unifying New York, um, uh, George W. Bush even, and, and what he did and, and looking now and kind of how far Rudy Giuliani has come since that moment and how far our nation has come arguably for the worse um, makes me sad. And, you know, the equivalent, I feel like for my generation is January 6th and watching people um, you know, from within domestic people storm the Capitol and just totally desecrate it. I thought that would be a moment that we could come together. But unfortunately, as you and I both know very well, it, it, it's not. And, and we seem to be more divided than ever before. What do you think about sort of our prospect of having another 9-11 moment? Is that possible now? That is a terrifying question. Let me make a couple of comments. One, Anyone who was mayor of New York would have had the support of America at that point. Um, mm. And, you know, when we look at the toll of that day, I think we're going to see the same toll in um, the devastation of uh, the earthquake now. Um, yeah. I think there are close to 3,000 people who are reported dead now. Um, and we need to have the same care and sympathy for that loss as well. Um, and we ought to take some climate action to prevent continuing wildfires like Maui, like floods that have now killed thousands in Libya, um, and earthquakes. Um, I'm not sure earthquakes are related to climate, let me just say that, but the wildfires and the floods, yes, they are. Um, and I don't think there was anything unique about Rudy Giuliani, but he did develop a reputation that has been totally trashed by his conduct, which may have been there all along. Uh, you know, I don't right. know that. Um, I want to sort of maybe end this discussion with a more cheerful note about the World Trade Centers. Um, one of the only happy memories of my first marriage. Um, and if you've read my book, The Watergate Girl, you know that it wasn't a good marriage. But one of the only happy moments I can remember was um, two other couples and Ian and I had wedding anniversaries in August. And the men got together and planned a wonderful thing. They sent a hand scripted invitation to all the wives, the three of us, and said, be ready at five o'clock in black tie. So I put on a long dress and was ready at five o'clock. And a limousine picked us up that already had the other two couples in it. We lived the closest, as it turned out, to the airport. And we went to the airport, got on the shuttle to New York in black tie. I lived in Washington. Got off in New York, were picked up by a limousine and whisked to the World Trade Center where we had drinks overlooking this amazing view of Manhattan. And then we were whisked to a lovely dinner um, and then to the Cafe Carlisle, which was very famous for Bobby Short piano. And then the waiter handed each of us a key to a room. We all were staying overnight. And the men had actually packed a suitcase for all the women uh, so that we would have clothes for the next day. So right. that was right. that was really a lovely evening. 
and was probably the only time I was in the World Trade Center. So I do have wow. this fond memory of it. And I did go to see, after it was reconstructed, um, one of my friend's daughters had an office there and I went to visit her oh. and um, I, to see the memorial. And so I, I do, you know, I think it's a sign of the vitality of America that we have rebuilt there and that we continue as a democracy or as a republic for as long as we can keep it. Those words ring out yeah. to me now as we face a terrible lack of bipartisanship, a terrible abundance of mis and disinformation. And I look forward to our conversation today with someone who can maybe enlighten us about how to get rid of some of the dis and misinformation and how cameras in the courtroom can help in getting yes. the facts out. But ending well, we, the yeah, lack of bipartisanship, I think, is a bigger topic than we can handle. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's that saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today, because um, for those of you who have listened to this podcast before, you know how big fans of uh, cameras in the courtroom we are. Um, this need is especially important now with the upcoming trials facing Donald Trump and the need for voters to assess the evidence to determine how to vote. Um, we have seen the impact of cameras at broadcasting the motion argument in Georgia um, and the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. Um, so Jill and I would like to uh, especially see that happen too uh, for the January 6th federal election interference trial broadcast via video to the world. After all, victims are typically allowed in the courtroom. And because we are all victims of that effort to overturn our vote, our right to vote, we deserve to see it. But what will it take to get there? And today, like Jill said, we have a great guest to talk about that and much more. Our guest is Anthony Coley. Currently, Anthony is an MSNBC contributor. I've had the privilege of being on air with him, and he is great. Before that, Anthony served as the spokesperson for Merrick Garland at the Department of Justice. He served from February of 2021, so really right after the inauguration, until January of 2023. This means he was at the department when the criticisms of Merrick Garland were at their highest. Anthony was also an assistant secretary at the Department of Treasury and has an extensive background in communications and press. So we're going to also talk to him about another subject that's a favorite of ours, which is messaging and how we can convince voters that the facts mean they should feel good about the economy, foreign relations, and our country, as well as about his op-ed about cameras in the courtroom. Um, Thank you, Anthony, for being with us today. It's great to have you. I am thrilled to be here, uh, Victor. And I got to say, I just love uh, how contagious your enthusiasm is <laughs> and your commitment to the cause. And Joe, I got to tell you, the more I learn about your incredible <laughs> career, uh, I mean, just the more privileged I am to, to just share the screen with you. I will tell you, I listen to Sisters in Law regularly regularly and i think isn't isn't that one of the politicon yes it um, is podcast so yeah. i listen to them regularly and jill you told a story two fridays ago mm -hmm. that i just love that made me go out and buy your book oh. um so i look forward to reading it but this is victor to everybody jill to everybody who is watching um or listening to 
this conversation. Two weeks ago, the first six minutes of the conversation was devoted to advice that the sisters-in-law would tell their younger selves. And um, it was, it's, it's really, it was really good and insightful. And particularly for the young people who are listening or watching to this, go back. Number one, just make sisters-in-law, as well as this one, a part of your regular diet. But listen to the first six minutes of this broadcast. Um, was it two Fridays ago, Jill? Um, I, I think it was. Was that the Rudy, Rudy, Rudy? Um, episode. I'll have to look it up and we'll post it on this, on our um, show notes for this one. Yeah. Incredible, incredible advice, particularly for good advice for younger people who are just getting started in their careers. So. Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you. And well, we are, by, by the way, we're going to ask you that same question at yes. the end of our show. All right. So okay. think about it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we are equally excited to have you on and we want to start off by talking about your amazing recent piece for Politico about the need to have cameras in the courtroom for Trump's federal trials where current rules prohibit cameras. Uh, first, walk us through the crux of your argument and why you felt so compelled to write that. Right. It starts with the basis. There's so much misinformation and disinformation out there about uh, the all of Donald Trump's trials, but in particular, we're talking about these federal trials. Um, there is lie after lie after lie. And I really think the best way to combat all the misinformation and disinformation is through the bright light of transparency. Um, and there are any number of ways, uh, any number of examples we could cite where uh, we have seen the positive effect on uh, cameras in the courtroom, I would say, I think one of the top benefits, and Jill, you wrote a similar piece, I think, one of the top benefits is um, just, it allows people to have faith in the system, if you will. Um, and there, right now, people get their information from so many different siloed media ecosystems, that there is not one central place um, or central set of facts or or truth. And so um, I, I just feel really strongly that um, that these 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 uh, trials should be broadcast um, live. Um, another option would be uh, live audio feeds. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's less compelling, but it would um, I think uh, still achieve the broader goal of, yeah. uh, of 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 keeping the facts front and center. Audio is better than nothing, but right. it is not even a fraction as good right. as video. Seeing a witness and their body language, their mm -hmm. tone of voice is very different than reading a transcript of it or right. hearing their voice without the body language. Um, I, I, we're going to put a link to your Politico article and my Detroit Press article um, because I really believe it's essential. But I do have a one worry, which okay. is that, and, and I wonder if you have an answer, is that our listeners will watch the trial. But the people who watch Fox News will not. And so I worry that there will not be the big impact that there should be. And you mentioned something that was crucial in my thinking about this is seeing the 
trial of Derek Chauvin for killing George Floyd. Right. Made it just so clear what his guilt was. It right. let you evaluate the expert testimony in a way you would never have done if you had to read it in right. the newspaper or right. watch a summary by some reporter getting it partly right, or maybe even all right, but in a one minute, two minute segment, as opposed right. to having watched all of it. How can we get people in these er era of siloed news sources? Right. How do we get people to watch it? So, I, you know, I'm going to take the over on that. I think Fox would air it live. Um, I don't know that OAN would or one of the other more concerned Newsmax. I don't know that they would, but I think Fox would. Um, and the other part of it, too, is what we what we achieve by having the the trials broadcast live is people are talking about it. Yeah. So you won't be able to go to your kid's ball game or you won't be able to go to the grocery store and standing in line. Everybody will be talking about it. And um, I so I, I think um, I don't want to say it's peer pressure, but I think the inquisitive minds will say, mm -hmm. you know, let me let me go over here myself and um, see what they um, what's being said. That's my hope. Um you know, my question, I guess, for you, Jill, is there are two ways for this to happen, right? One is through the Judicial Conference of the United States. Right. Um, which is, for folks who may not know, that's the policy-making body for the federal judiciary. They meet twice a year. Um, I think they meet um, in a couple weeks here in Washington. It's chaired by the Chief Justice of the right. Supreme Court, John Roberts. Um, they can change the rules. There have been pilots. And then the other option is through federal legislation. Um, which one of those two options do you think is the most likely way for us to get cameras in the courtroom? Well, I will answer that in a vague way because <laughs> we know that despite the success of the federal yeah. experiment, they right. voted to not continue the experiment. Right. Right. Uh, so that's horrible. And I don't think that Justice Roberts is going to change his mind, although maybe he will succumb to some pressure about right. the uh, reputation of the court and encourage it, at least for these trials, which are of national importance right. and in which one of the arguments I made in my piece was that this is even more important than any other trial because victims we all were right. we were the victims of the attempt to take away counting all the votes and right. victims have a right to be in the courtroom and the only right. way all of us can be in the courtroom is by it being televised so i think there's extra reasons here and if they don't act then i think that congress must do something mm -hmm. but congress is pretty much dysfunctional right now they right. get very little done. They may not even be keeping our government going. So uh, right. it, it's I don't I don't know. I think it is the right thing to do. And I think there should be a mass movement to get it to, to happen. And I hope that people will respond to that. If I can go back to something, Anthony, that you were saying about, you know, getting the conversation started. This is something that I often think about when when I go on Fox is, you know, I'm not trying to reach those extreme Republicans, but it's just 
hopefully reaching that person who might be walking past the television at a grocery store right. and they tune in right. for that couple of minutes. But going back to the point that Jill mentioned about what it'll take to, do you think that even if the conversation gets started, what will it take to convince Republicans and those who might be January 6th deniers or skeptics that, in fact, what happened on January 6th was a serious crime and Trump shouldn't must be held accountable? So I got to tell you, um, I had a, I got to, after watching Trump go to this Iowa, Iowa State football game over the weekend, <laughs> uh, you know, I started to question how much about what we think um, yeah. is actually happening on the kind of right side of the equation. Um, and I, I'm going to just throw this out here. I am not convinced. I think there may be a silent, um, a silent majority over there. Do you remember the photograph where the guy, I'm not going to demonstrate, but the guy was, <laughs> Donald Trump was waving and then there was a guy kind of burly, overweight or kind of yes. big husky white dude um, giving him the finger. Um, I, w- I thought that was refreshing. I'm just going to be candid about that. I thought that was refreshing. Yeah. And not just that it happened, but that he did it and he wasn't afraid to do it. Um, in front of all of those other people. And so that tells me here that there is um, there is something happening outside the beltway that um, we may not always see kind of we're focused myopically, uh, myopically on the news of the day and the, and the tweet of the day. I feel like there may be something else going on, um, going on. Uh, I don't know, Victor, yeah. if that answers your question, but um You know, Joe Biden is a person who has deep faith that the American people will get it right. Um, And do you remember going back to the last midterm election? He gave this speech um, about how democracy was at stake. And there were a lot of people like me in Washington who were saying, you know, no, he's taking attention away from um, from the candidates in the field, right? He shouldn't be doing this. It's not about him. He's not on the ballot. But it, it worked. Yeah. Um, and he used the megaphone to center the argument. And what we saw that happen in uh, 2022 is the same thing that we saw that happened two years before, that a majority of people came out and they voted for democracy. So um, that's not to say that the threat uh, on the right isn't real. It is real. I'm not just sure how deep it is. Um, I think it's deep enough to propel Donald Trump to um, the Republican nomination. But beyond that, I, I don't know. And this is not, and I should, I should uh, preface this, that, that remark by saying the following. This will be a close election regardless, right? There are only 44,000 votes in three states that uh, separated um, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona. It's going to be a close election. And what we are seeing right now across the country are attempts to um, uh, strengthen the voter pool. Right. So you don't have as many um, people who are likely to be Democrats going to the uh, cast their votes for Democrats. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we all have got to be 
um, vigilant because it may not be the same type of um, election that we saw in 2022, right? The rules may be different. Um, so I feel like I, I'm, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but. No, that was uh, a great answer. I, I think you made me feel better in your original answer to Victor's question. Um, but, and I think you're right that he only controls maybe even a third of the Republican party, which right. in a primary is definitely enough to carry. Um, right. and he has never won the popular vote. And right. I think it's really up to Democrats to get out the vote and to make sure that everyone who can vote does vote and that we keep fighting in court to make sure that everyone can vote. Um, but let's go back to this, the camera issue, because okay. yeah. you made a point in your piece that colleagues of yours at the Department of Justice might be concerned about cameras in the courtroom. What are their concerns? Because I just don't get it. We haven't seen anybody playing to the cameras. Right. We ha And cameras are now minuscule things that can be hidden behind the wall. They're not right. the huge giant TV cameras of the 50s that would right. you know, be in the way in a courtroom. Uh, what are their objections? So I suspect they will. They would say two things. I, I haven't spoken to anybody about it, but I know how the building thinks. I think they would say two things. Number one, they would say that uh, it's not their decision, right? It's the judicial conference's decision. So they would make that distinction. And number two, I think they would um, worry about the safety of the prosecutors. Um, there are uh, a number of folks who, um, whom I know, Jill, who I'm sure you probably know as well, um, who are doing incredible work. But we have seen what has happened when Donald Trump and others around him um, throw these um, false attacks and accusations to all these folks. And so I think they would um, I think they would worry about the safety of the prosecutors. I mean, we, we mentioned that you, you know, you you were the spokesperson at the DOJ um, when Merrick Garland, uh, you know, under Merrick Garland. What do you think Merrick Garland thinks about all of this? I mean, I he sure is, of course, that concern because he's spoken about that um, before. But what do you think Merrick Garland thinks about cameras in the courtroom? And is there any pressure that he could put on key players, perhaps? So I think this is going to be a question that he will be asked next week. He has a hearing. Uh, I think in front of the House Judiciary, it's either House Judiciary or this um, select committee on the weaponization of the government, whatever that is. It's, I can't remember which one, but he has a hearing uh, next week. And I suspect he's going to be asked about that um, then. So maybe you guys, Victor, have me back and we can analyze his answer. Yeah. Uh, I suspect it's going to be something along the lines of it's not my decision to make, um, which uh, I I I. You know, if I were making the policy, I would argue that um, I take that point. But if we cannot provide transparency into the trial of a former president who has been charged with trying to overturn the will of the American voters, that I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, another a better better occasion to to do it. I can't think of another more important reason. I personally wouldn't let him get away with it's not up to me. 
That isn't an answer to the question of what does he think. And he knows how federal trials go. And he knows that it will not interfere. We saw it in Georgia uh, when we saw the motions argued in the Georgia courts. And there was no disruption. And Americans learned a lot from being able to see that hearing. We saw it in the George Floyd trial. So yep. I, I, w- I personally would not let him get away with that. But, I, you um, know, you know, I, this one, I, I love this. Is what I love about you, Joe. I just love your candor. Uh, <laughs> I always feel like this is the first real conversation that we've had, but I feel like I know you and through just <laughs> listening to you on TV and these podcasts, I mean, you always, you just, you just shoot straight. And I love that. Um, well, I try. <laughs> and Merrick Garland went to the same high school I did, by the way. Oh, oh yeah, I, yeah. I, I, hundreds of years after I graduated. But um, <laughs> anyway, same. Anyway. But listen, so here's what I think. Um, I, I think they would what I urged them to do in my piece was to even if they could not bring themselves to supporting it is to informing the judicial conference that they wouldn't oppose it. If yeah. the conference decided um, that they would go. So that's how I tried to. uh bring people, Jill, along to the, uh, uh, along the way. So in that same vein of Merrick Garland, let's talk about your time at the Department of Justice, because it was at a time when there was a lot of criticism of Merrick Garland. And Mm -hmm. I think it hurt the perception and image of the Department of Justice. How did you deal with that? And and what was your advice to Merrick Garland at the time? I dealt with it better than him. He has a thicker skin than I do. Uh, <laughs> and so just let me rewind for a second. I'm not sure how much, uh, I think you guys re- pre-recorded the intro, so I'm not sure how much you got into my bio, but uh, I spent a lot of time uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, I was uh, comms director for uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, for Senator and Governor John Corzine, for Senator Zell Miller. Uh, I've done a couple of presidential campaigns, um, but there's still something very personal uh, I take it personally when the people I work for are attacked. Um, I, you know, I would hope I would have a thicker skin, uh, but uh, I think what the reason my reaction was probably um, speaking candidly, Jill, is because I saw how hard that he and others were trying to get it right. Right, I saw them put in place people and processes to make sure that just the rule of law and equal justice under law uh, remain front front and center in the department. And um, so that's what frustrated me. Like they really, uh, after the four years of the Trump administration, when so many people there in the Trump time pushed the bounds of what was appropriate, to put it mildly. <laughs> uh, you know, I lived through the transition yeah. to Edward Levy to rebuild the Department of Justice. Um, yeah. And so I certainly understand the need to rebuild and recreate a credibility for the Department of Justice after what had happened right. in the Trump administration. But I wonder if you think that some of his decisions were the right ones. And then I want to talk about communications. But yeah. In terms of his decisions, his decision to not appoint a special counsel for uh, the investigation until way late. Yeah. And his decision now to make Weiss a special counsel right. to investigate what has failed as an investigation and yeah. to prosecute cases 
that would never be prosecuted except for the name of the defendant, which is, of Correct. course, anti-justice. So the decision that um, I didn't like the most is not even close is the first E.G. Carroll decision. Um, yes. I just. Good uh, one. <laughs> yeah, I just it just didn't sit well with me. Um, and. It let's, looks like let's tell our have, audience what that was, just in case they aren't following. You're, you're the lawyer, so I will let you. I will. Well, you're, you're the lawyer, so I will. Basically, they said, well, yeah, we'll defend him because he was acting in the scope of his job, which to me was a totally ridiculous concept and which they have now finally withdrawn from. And so right. he had to get his own private lawyer. It right. clearly wasn't in the scope of his job any more than January 6th or overturning the election or asking for right. votes in Georgia. Those are not part of the job of the president or the chief of staff or anybody else. Right. Um, those are political activities on behalf of a candidate. Okay. Sorry. That answers that. So that's the very top. There's nothing even close. That really bothered me. Uh, and I'm glad to see that the DOJ now appears to be trying to get it right, right. in that case. Um I think in terms of the special counsel, um, he made the appointment um, first with um, the first special counsel. He did that because he said extraordinary circumstances demanded it. Uh, and what are the extraordinary circumstances? Um, the current, the former president running for his job against the current president and whose cabinet Merrick Garland served, right? And that didn't exist before uh, Trump um, announced that he would run for president. So that announcement, I think, was the precipitating uh, reason for that action. And that feels right to me. Uh, Jill, I have a lot of yeah. confidence in um, the career prosecutors um, of the Justice Department. And I think that they could uh, handle just about any prosecution that comes their way. Now, having said that, excuse me, there's also this um, this perception that we have to contend with. And one of the things the attorney general said early on in his tenure is that it's not just enough to do the right thing. People have to, uh, we have to appear to do the right thing. And um, so I think that's what he was trying to do with mm -hmm. the appointment of this uh, of, of both of these um, special counsels, to be honest, not just doing the right thing, but looking like you're doing the, the right thing. So. OK, I'll I'll let you end with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, does, does that that doesn't I, I'm, I'm curious, I'm interested in your thoughts. I, I know you have a different point of view, but does that make well, sense? Does that square? I, no, I mean, what you said makes sense. I, I mean, obviously, there was a lot of disruption in the waiting for the appointment of what turns out to be a fabulous special prosecutor, um, special counsel, as they're called now, uh, with Jack Smith. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not seeing the same thing with Weiss becoming a special counsel, except for being able to indict in some other jurisdiction yeah. uh, than Delaware. And right. I, I'm not 100% sure why he needs to have the indictment there. I do firmly believe that the gun charges would never be brought unless he had right. committed a crime with those guns. Right. right. Um, he owned them for what I can't remember now. It's a week or two. Um, and he, he was 
deceitful in filling out the form because he was a drug addict. Um, but again, that would never be prosecuted except right. for the fact that his name is Biden. Um, as to the tax things, that would not be indicted because he paid back the back taxes. Yes, right. he was guilty. He did it. He admitted it. He took responsibility right. and he paid it back. Those are not indictable offenses. So right. I don't understand why we needed to go beyond that. I, I also, yeah. I in my corporate career, uh, did a lot of international joint ventures. And I don't understand how you could get so far along in a plea deal. I also obviously right. have done a lot of plea deals. Um, right. I don't know how you can get that far along and be in such total misunderstanding of what the other side is asking yeah. for. So um, that's so a concern I, I, to me. I, I hear that. This is the last thing I will say about it. I think Garland's hands were tied uh, yes. with the appointment of Weiss as special counsel. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Once he, once Weiss decided that he was going to inform the attorney general publicly yes. that he needed it, I don't think Garland had, he didn't have any uh, other option. Um, you mean making him special counsel or in yeah, yeah, the original? Yeah, yeah. I think he had to. And then um, you didn't make this point, but other people had uh, the original appointment. The derision, the original decision to keep Weiss on was not made by Garland. This was made by the interim um, leadership of the Justice Department. Garland wasn't confirmed until March 11th of that first year. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those U.S. attorneys were um dismissed with the exception of two Weiss and Lausch in the Northern District of Illinois, where you are yes. um, in, in, in February. Um, so that happened before Garland got there. Okay. Um, so, so go ahead, Victor. I was gonna say, let, let's move on to um, uh, yeah. communications. You mentioned um, President Biden in 2024, and we often talk about the yeah. large gap between what's happening with this administration and what people are actually seeing and feeling. And so we wanted to ask you as someone who has been in the comms world for so long and is an expert about your thoughts, particularly on the all the amazing things that Biden has done, but also why that message doesn't seem to be getting across and how we can fix that possibly. Yeah, it's not getting across. There's a fundamental disconnect between what he has done and what people think he has done and, um, and, and the fact that many people still aren't feeling it. I think one of the things that he needs to do or the campaign needs to do better is deploy more um, individuals. You know, he, Biden himself, um, he's a good communicator, but um, you need to have more people uh, out in the echo chamber making the point. Uh, more effectively, right? Somebody once told me um, I, maybe a week or so ago that they were it's a reporter who was um, present for a new ferry that um, had been purchased by a town um, uh, with funds from the Inflation Reduction Act, right? That may sound like not a big deal, but for real people, um, you know, across the country. And there was no administration, high level administration presence for that. So my hope is that over the course of the next several weeks and months, um, that uh, more people from the administration um, will be on hand for these types of uh, ribbon cuttings. Uh, cuttings. Yeah. But I think, um, Victor, there is something deeper um, happening. 
um, in the country. Uh, and I don't know that anybody has a, I mean, I'm in Washington right now and you just hear um, sirens in the background. I'm not sure if you can hear it. Um, and this is um, a pretty stable area, um, middle-class neighborhood where I live on, on Capitol Hill, but um, crime is uh, higher than it has, it has been and in, in recent memory. And there are a number of factors that are at play here. Um, I think uh, the siloed media ecosystem is one of those factors. There is not a single source of truth nowadays, right? People don't, not as much as they used to, people don't gather around their television at 6.30 and watch Walter Concrete, um, right? Um, <laughs> I wish Victor they doesn't did. even know who Victor Concrete is. <laughs> oh, I've heard of him. I've heard of him. <laughs> In a museum, probably. <laughs> yes. But but there's there's not that anymore. So I think there are a number of things that are happening that uh, contribute to this lack of enthusiasm we are seeing right now um, for the president's reelection. But I have uh, faith in history that what we saw during the Barack Obama uh, first term uh, will happen um, again in this term. Uh, will Bill Clinton even, I'll go back there. Uh, in the 94, 95 period, there were legitimate questions about whether or not he would be reelected. And, uh, and he was. I, I, I just am so upset that the reality doesn't match what's reported. I'm sad that the media focuses on uh, different things with Biden and with Trump. And I, I hope that we can get it right because the facts are all extremely positive for this administration and what they've accomplished. Right. And um, I, I, Victor is one of the best communicators about the accomplishments. I think he should be an official spokesman for the. I agree. Uh, I support uh, that emotion. He's he's <laughs> terrific on this. Um, I have to stay more apolitical because of my NBC um, contract, so I can't be as outspoken as he is. But I think he does a great job, and you do a great job. And I hope that we will have you helping the Democrats craft a message. I mean, nothing sells as good as make America great again. It's false. It has no substance to it, but it's an easily repeatable phrase. And we need something like that. And I think lately Biden's had some very clever things, including taking Bidenomics and making it a positive instead of using it as it was intended as an insult and um, uh, making a video of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene as part of his that campaign. That was really good. It wasn't that, that good? Was I mean, that's it was terrific. exceptional. It yeah, was so exceptional. I, I hope they will keep that up and turn everything on its head. Um, and I hope you'll stay involved in helping because I know you'll do a great job if you do. So thank you for all of that. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And uh, I'm going to be as involved as I can. Great. Thank you. So it's it's been a pleasure. Yes. Oh, so let's, I mean, let's close I, out this. Really quickly, because um, I know um, we, we started off the episode by talking about advice. Do you have any last advice for the younger listeners uh, of, of our show? Yeah, um, I will not tell the whole story, but I will just tell the takeaway. When I um, was an undergrad, I was working uh, three jobs 
Um, and I was actually sending money home uh, to my parents to help keep on the lights. And I got an offer to be a White House intern. This is um, 98. And uh, White House internships at that point were unpaid. And um, I was a business major undergrad at Morehouse. uh, And I also had an offer to be an intern. I think was at like Wrigley right there in Chicago, Jill. And it was a wonderful paid internship. It was housing, it was stipend, it was everything that you uh, wanted. And my stepdad was like, uh, he had an illness that would kill him two two years later. Uh, He's like, why are we having this conversation? What are you talking about? You're going to go to Chicago. You're going to do this thing. Um, And my mom told me to, um, to follow my heart and that it would all, if you follow your heart, Um, whatever it is that you're doing will work out. And um, I I won't go into the details, but uh, I ended up in in Washington um, as an intern um, in the office of the vice president. Gore was vice president at the time in his his, uh, West Wing office. And uh, that launched my whole career. I ended up working on his campaign in 2000 and... I found my way to Washington. So oh, that follow is your heart. such great advice. That, that is absolutely. And I think it's sort of similar to the advice I may have given the last time I was asked this, which was that you should ask yourself, what am I actually going to do on the job? Don't pay attention to the title. Right. Don't pay it. You know, I, I, I have to admit a free internship does raise significant issues. And that's why, Victor, who was an intern in the White House two years ago, got paid because right. that was wrong. It was the first summer. It was the first time. Which it was the first time they had wrong. ever paid. Yeah. I mean, that's which is ridiculous that it was 2022. But um, I, I, I do think you have to ask, what is the actual job? And is right. this my passion? That's right. really important. You've you've been a great guest. I loved having right. you uh, here. I hope you'll come you. back. I know we'll have more to talk about. All right. Very much enjoyed. Thank you, thank you all for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Anthony Coley. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We will be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics, so be sure to tune in then. But in the meantime, you can also uh, rate and review us wherever you follow your podcast, um, and also subscribe to us on youtube.com slash politicon and like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Uh, We appreciate you tuning in every week, and we will see you next week. Thank you so much. See you next week. Week.